Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast. I'm Tim McNinch. I teach the Hebrew Bible at Christian Theological Seminary. And I am Paul Essen, a PhD student in Hebrew Bible at Yale. In a couple weeks, we will be celebrating Easter. And the first reading given in this lectionary for Easter Sunday comes from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 1 through 6. So Tim, you have drawn the short straw on this one. So tell us... <laughs> Why should preachers use Jeremiah 31 as your sermon text for this Easter? <laughs> well, maybe they shouldn't use it. I mean, after all, it seems fitting to focus on the gospel resurrection narrative on Easter Sunday. Ah, that's fair. So, uh, podcast ended then. Are we done? Yeah. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening, everyone. No, I, I, think, uh, I think we might still have a few helpful things to pass along about this passage from Jeremiah. Uh, there are some ways to include the message of the prophet in our preaching about Jesus' resurrection. And, you know, hopefully we can tilt preachers toward a few of those angles. I was hoping that you would say that. So uh, could you remind us about what is in Jeremiah 30, 31? Yes. Uh, let me start out, though, by just saying, since this is your first regular episode as a member yeah. of the First Reading team, that it's so great to be doing this with you, Paul, and I'm really looking forward to the insights that you'll be bringing to our listeners and to me. Oh, my God. Thanks, Tim. I'm very happy for this space to bring biblical studies and the world of the church together. This will be a lot of fun, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay, so if, if preachers know anything about Jeremiah 31... They probably know that the chapter ends with the famous words about God establishing a new covenant with Israel and with Judah, where the instruction of God will be written not on tablets of stone, but on the people's very hearts, when their, their knowledge of God, that is their, their living relationship with God, will be something innate to them, imprinted on their hearts. You know, when Jesus says in Matthew 5 that he didn't come to do away with the Mosaic Torah, but to bring it to fulfillment, this is the sort of idea he had in mind, a, a kind of communal renewal where Torah becomes something internalized and intuitive, a transformation of the heart, rather than something external against which God's people are measured. Ah, uh, that's powerful. That's a very powerful vision from the prophet. But that's not the part of Jeremiah 31 that we're reading for this week. Am I correct? Uh, yes, that's true. This Easter, the lectionary takes us back to the beginning of that chapter, the first six verses. But I want us to have that uh, new covenant at the end of the chapter in mind, because there is a thread that runs through the chapter and leads to that climax in verses 31 to 34. But going back to the beginning, the chapter begins with an affirmation that God intends to be the God of all Israel. And that note of inclusiveness here is important. In fact, the, the whole prophetic oracle seems to be very historically situated. Hmm. Are you saying we might be able to tell what historical circumstances are behind this text? I think so. I, I mean, the context of prophetic poetry is, as you know, notoriously difficult to pin down. <laughs> yeah. And Jeremiah happens to be a particularly scrambled up book of, of prophecy. It doesn't run chronologically. Nevertheless, this particular poem, I think, has some clues in it that may help to anchor it historically. For one, there's that emphasis on God's relationship with, quote-unquote, all the families of Israel, as mm -hmm. if they're divided and need to be reunified. 
And then there's several uses of terms that point specifically to the northern kingdom of Israel. There's the name Israel, of course, um, but also the geographic reference to the hills of Samaria in the north, mm-hmm. the, the tribal territory of Ephraim, which is a name for the northern kingdom. And, and it talks about uh, Zion, that is Jerusalem, as if it's somewhere distant that the hearers of this oracle would travel to. And uh, going a little further, after the lectionary reading ends, the oracle continues by naming this people Jacob, who who was the kind of namesake ancestor of the northern kingdom. And in the middle of the chapter, just to keep piling this on here, we encounter Rachel, who was the ancestral mother of the northern kingdom. Leo was the ancestral mother of the southern kingdom, Judah. And then the famous New Covenant text at the end, as we already mentioned, talks about God's like new deal with Israel and with Judah, naming both of these kingdoms individually. Ah, that's interesting. So does this oracle come from a time when the northern kingdom of Israel was still on the scene? Or perhaps the prophet is speaking in the wake of the Assyrian conquest of Israel? Yeah, that that actually seems like the most likely scenario to me. Jeremiah was a Judahite prophet who operated kind of near the end, historically, of the southern Judahite monarchy. Mm-hmm. One of the important political goals of one of Judah's last kings, King Josiah, was to unify Israel and Judah as one people with one God, worshiping in one holy place in, in Jerusalem. So that king, Josiah, sought to incorporate the remnant of the northern kingdom, which, as you say, had had been conquered a few generations back by the Assyrian Empire, Mm -hmm. under the auspices of the kingdom of Judah. So Jeremiah the prophet seems to have supported this program, and this chapter of his prophecies seems to have that very ideal in mind, an incorporation of the remnant of the northern kingdom into this new unified Israel, which is based in Jerusalem. Oh, fascinating. Uh, But I have to ask you, Tim, what does any of this have to do with Easter and the resurrection of Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, obviously not much directly, but I do think there are some Eastery themes in here, yeah. particularly the promise of new life and this kind of fresh start for God's people, in this case, for the Israelites of the North. Oh, that sounds a little Easter-y indeed. Could you unpack that theme a little bit in this prophecy? Sure, sure. So as the prophecy gets going in verses 2 to 3, there's this mysterious language about survivors of the sword finding grace in the wilderness. Now that seems to be an allusion to the story of Israel's exodus from Egypt and their wanderings in the wilderness, which, by the way, fun fact, is thought to be a tradition that's connected in a special way to the northern kingdom. Oh, yeah. Anyway, there's no way to know for sure what Jeremiah means by that that weird line, survivors of the sword in the wilderness. But I would wager that the prophet has in mind the episode that we find in Exodus 32, right after the incident of the golden calf, where the Levites avenge God's honor by going through the Israelite camp, uh, slaughtering at random. I know, that's one of my least favorite stories in the Bible. (laughs) But from the perspective of the ancient author, this uh, uh, execution done by the Levites was an appropriate and commendable uh, execution of God's judgment upon an unfaithful people. Mm 
And according to the story, those who were left, those who survived the sword in the wilderness, appealed to Moses to seek God's forgiveness, and they found grace, a fresh start, just as Jeremiah recalls here. They got a fresh start with God. And then Jeremiah ties that past experience in this chapter to the present hope that he perceived for Israel. They had been decimated by the Assyrian Empire and scattered, exiled into diaspora. But the prophet lays out a vision here of a new start after that disaster. Just like the original Israelites made it through the wilderness and found rest in the hill country of Samaria, this remnant of that community were going to be given a fresh start in their land. God says to them, I love you with an everlasting love, and I will continue my faithfulness to you. Mm. So verses 4 to 5 begin every phrase with that really potent Hebrew word, od, od, which means something like once again, od, I will build you up, od, you will dance with joy, od, you will plant vineyards and harvest their goodness. In this ode, 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 again, 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 there's a, there's a kind of reversal of the losses that they had experienced as a people, a fresh start for the survivors. Yes, yes. I can see how this idea of experiencing new life in a fresh start after a terrible loss resonates with the ethos of Jesus' resurrection. Is this the main connection you're wanting to make here? Yeah, I think that's probably the strongest exegetical point of connection between this text and the resurrection text. But, you know, there is one other nuance that caught my attention here. Despite all that once again language, the newness that Jeremiah is describing is not exactly just like a simple return to how things used to be. There's also real newness, a genuine newness that represents discontinuity, a kind of break from the past. In the case of Jeremiah's unified Israel, the fresh start for northern survivors would be marked uh, by worship at Jerusalem instead of the several regional temples in the hill country of Samaria. That's the impact of those last verses that talk about northerners encouraging each other to go up to Zion to worship God. Yes, the remnants restored, but it's not going to be exactly like it used to be. And, you know, I, I feel there's something here that speaks to us on the other side of the worst of the COVID pandemic. And though, of course, the virus is still with us. It's still causing harm. But those of us who are here now, who will be worshiping on Easter, are in a way the survivors of a cataclysmic catastrophe. Hmm. How do we look to God in this season to redefine a new norm for us? What does the newness of God look like for us? For Israel and Judah, Jeremiah envisioned a new covenant, which would not be like the one that was etched in stone, which their ancestors broke, which, by the way, is another callback to Exodus 32. That's right. the kind of through line in this poem. Mm -hmm. Their newness would be a transformation of their heart as a people, inclining them towards faithful worship of God. So if I were preaching on Easter and I had this first reading in my back pocket, I might draw from it to propose that God may be doing something new in our day, that for those of us who have survived this latest traumatic disaster, there's yeah. a call to re-examine our worship of God 
Can the pandemic teach us to recognize the inequities in our community and in our health systems? Mm -hmm. Will our worship transform in the post-pandemic era to include care for the most vulnerable in our world? If the resurrection of Jesus marked a fundamental shift in the power dynamics of the world, a breaking in of God's own reign into the world, then the words of the prophet here are they're like a yes and an amen to that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Asking us to reimagine faithfulness in the new reality that's created by God's actions in the world through Jesus. That will preach. You have managed <laughs> to dig up quite a bit from that first reading that could be useful to preachers, even if their primary sermon text for the week is the resurrection narrative. Thanks for doing that exegetical work, Tim. Of course, my pleasure. Well, that will bring us to the end of this week's episode. Fast Reading is produced by Richard Wren, Rosie Kandertow, Tim McNinch, and me, Paul Esser. You can find a searchable repository of all of our back episodes at festreadingpodcast.com, where you can also learn more about our hosts and guests, browse our snazzy merch, and if you would like, donate to support this podcast. Drop us a line at festreadingpodcast.gmail.com or find us in the comments on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I am Paul Esser. And I'm Tim McNinch. Have a great week and a blessed Easter. <laughs>